All right, so grab your Bibles if you would and open to Acts chapter 9. So we are jumping back into where we've been uh, since actually the fall. We're walking through a series called Resurgence. And if you're new to, to the church, catch you up a little bit. If you're not, um, just to kind of re engage again. You know, you come through Christmas, you get into January, and, and things are kind of crazy, and then you kind of try to settle back in and focus in, and I feel like I'm focusing back in on the journey that God has us on. And so resurgence, this whole year that we're walking through, has three elements or three rhythms to it that we're endeavoring to live out. The first one is Sunday mornings, which we call learn, which is, again, diving into the book of Acts and asking the question, okay, it looked like this for them 2,000 years ago. What is an authentic reflection of what the church was then? What does it look for us like today? And then the second thing is the concept of live, which is when we're in our community groups, we're actually digesting what we're learning on Sunday morning so we can get deeper into what God is saying to us about our lives and experiencing his power and the fullness of the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. And then that third element, you notice probably when you came in today, you got another one of these. At the beginning of each month, you get a card on your chair, and it says love on one side, and then the other side has a word. This word this month is hospitality. This is a, a journey that we're on together as a church to help us step out of our normal default, which is we hang around people that we know and people that know Jesus, to actually reach out to people that don't know Jesus. And so we've done a number of things each month to take steps towards that, like starting a conversation and connecting with people and praying for people. And this month is a big step. It's called hospitality, which means making space to welcome somebody into your home or to have a meal with them to get to know them. And so maybe somebody you've been talking to. There's some great ideas that people have been doing. In fact, there is a community group today that's having a Super Bowl party, and they've invited a number of people from their laundry love to come join them for their Super Bowl party. That is awesome. It's going to be a great time. Others have, like, at the common meals that community groups do, they're inviting people who don't know Jesus to come be a part of those, just to connect. So I know for some, you're like, oh, that freaks me out. You know, the beautiful thing is God loves strangers, and so should we, because strangers are supposed to become friends, friends when they encounter the gospel. And so that's what this is about. So I know for some, it's like, ah, I'm not going to do that. There's a person missing out on what God wants to do if, you ask, if that's kind of your position. Stretch yourself. Allow God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, to give you courage to do something you don't normally do because there's somebody else that will greatly benefit because someday they may come to know Jesus because you were willing to risk and show courage in your life. Can we do it? All right, it's good. So Acts chapter 9, verses 32 to 43 this morning. Uh, before we read the passage um, and get into this, we're going to talk about the power of God's power, which sounds a little bit crazy. What does that mean? So we're going to talk about God's power in terms of miracles, but really what we're talking about is what is the story behind that? Why does God do miraculous things? And even more than that, part of what we're talking about is, is if you're honest, if you're like me, if you read through the book of Acts and we're going through things and you see what we're about to see in this passage, we're going we're gonna to read how somebody who can't walk walks and somebody who's dead comes to life. Those are called miracles. Those are crazy things that we're like, wow. And when we read through those things, we're like, wow, that's amazing. And then when we look at our lives, we go, where is it? When's the last time somebody got raised from the dead in front of your eyes? When's the last time someone who couldn't walk can walk in front of your eyes? And we think, okay, well, that was great for the Bible, and I wish in the Bible times, but I wish that would happen today, but uh, it just doesn't happen today. And so there's this disconnect. So why would God record it in the Scriptures and tell us that the Holy Spirit would, would, would empower us and that we would do greater things than He would do to tease us, to confuse us, to frustrate us? No. There's something missing in the way that we express our faith that they had and somehow we've missed out on. But God wants His church 2,000 years ago, or 2,000 years removed from what we read today, 
to experience his power as they experience his power. Same spirit that lived in Jesus, same spirit that's in Peter, is the same spirit that lives in us. No difference. God doesn't change. He's the same. And he wants to work in us. So it's with that mindset this morning, I, I want to look at these two, two stories in this passage, and then we'll talk about God's power. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to start reading verse 32, Acts chapter 9. It says this, Now as Peter went here and there among them all, he came down also to the saints who lived at Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose, and all the residents of Lydda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. In verse 36, Now there was in Joppa a disciple named Tabitha, which translated means Dorcas. She was, the, was full of good works and acts of charity. In those days she became ill and died. And when she had, uh, they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Since Lydda was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us uh, uh, without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. And when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. All the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all outside, knelt down and prayed, and turning to, her, to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. Then calling, uh, uh, then calling the saints and the widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa, and many believed in the Lord. And he stayed in Joppa for many days with, uh, with uh, one Simon, a tanner. <clears throat> so, sound pretty crazy? Just, just let it settle in. That there's a guy who can't walk, and he's walking. There's a woman who's, a de who's dead is alive. That's the power of God. But when you look at those passages, what you and I need to understand some things before we'll talk about experiencing God's power is, where is God's power seen? Where is God's power showing up in these passages? There's some really important things that we need to understand about the way God works. God does miraculous things because he loves people, but he doesn't just love individuals. He loves everybody that influenced by what he does in their lives. So understanding that God does things strategically and on purpose, there's four things of where we see God's power in this passage. First of all, it's in location, specific to location. Look at verse 32 and verse 38. So Aeneas lives in Lydda. Tabitha lives in Joppa, two cities that you and I have absolutely no idea anything about, really, other than the fact that we can't read them and don't know how to pronounce them, right? Both of these cities are significant cities historically. In fact, from what we can tell, Joppa was the, was the kind of the capital of a Jewish district. So these are cities of influence. And so these miraculous things happen in cities where there's influence, where there's, there's a large amount of people that can witness and see and know what's happened so that there's a ripple effect that people see that the power of God is showing up. Does that mean that God doesn't do healings in small towns or in rural areas? No, that's not, that's not what it's saying. But the reality of the way God works is that God is doing something on purpose, something strategic. God does miracles in people for people to influence people. That's the way he works. And think about the way that God works in, in our context, the way that we understand even our own context, our own location. And think about, like, so Simi Valley is kind of, for California, it's kind of a medium-sized city. It's not L.A., but it's not some small, you know, town in the middle of the Central Valley. So what would God want to do here? But, but think about our city for just a moment. I just want you just to think about the city of Simi Valley. What is Simi Valley known for? 
Well, I'll tell you because I've lived here for six years, but before I moved here, there was two things. When I said Simi, Simi Valley, these are the two things people have said without, a, without hesitation. Reagan Library and the Rodney King trial. Those are the two. Those are the two things. And so you're like, well, yeah, that's where we're moving. You know, there's a whole lot more to the city, but more than just those two things. But when you think about our city has an interesting history because it has a lot of things that, that it was used for to give the appearance of something that was in another location. For example, a lot of Ronald Reagan's westerns and other westerns were filmed around this area, like in Corriganville Park. You know, obviously, when you come down through Santa Susana Pass, you see all the rocks. It looks western, doesn't it? It looks like it fits in that kind of movie. Also, if you drive up to the end of Tapo Canyon, you'll discover what used to be Big Sky Ranch there, and the Big Sky Ranch is where they filmed Little House on the Prairie. In fact, before we even moved here, Kim and I took a little trek to try to find it. It doesn't exist anymore because Michael Landon burned it down, okay? Sorry for those who keep searching for it. It's not there anymore. The set's gone. But so, so you have Corganville, you, you have Big Sky, you have everything based on what? Something that appears to be something, but it's not that in reality. Another big kind of thing that we're known for is interesting is one of the safest cities in America. Those of you who live here, is that true? Yes. It's not. <laughs> There's a lot of reasons that it was given that name, and I won't go into that. I have insider information. But besides that, what is our city built on? The appearance of a Western scene, the appearance of some small town in Minnesota, and the appearance of the safest city in America. But what is it really known for? I don't really know. But you know what it would be really cool if it was known for? Like Joppa and Lida, which for years afterwards, people say, yeah, that's, that's where that crippled guy got healed. That's where that woman who got, was raised from the dead at that city. Wouldn't it be awesome if Simi Valley wasn't known for the appearance of something, but was known for the reality of God's power showing up in people's lives and people being healed and transformed? I would love to live in a city like that. God can do that. And you'll catch the drift of this message is part like instruction from the scriptures and others just by faith believing that God could do something like he did then. He can do it now. He can do it in us. He can do it in our city. Second thing is the concept of miracles. God's power is seen in the miraculous that happens. Look at verse 34 and verse 40. So you have in verse 34 explaining about Aeneas, and he was obviously he was paralyzed for eight years, and now he's walking. That is a significant miracle when somebody can't walk and they can walk. Even more so, Tabitha in verse 40. She was dead, and now she's alive. She's resurrected. That's pretty significant. But I think sometimes we have these categories and say, okay, those are miracles, but all these other things that aren't as dramatic are not miraculous, but they are. I'll tell you, one of my, my most favorite services or Sundays of the entire year is the last Sunday of the year. It's when we do our pancake pajama breakfast. We do one Sunday and we pack it in. And a lot of people are out of town with travels and things like that. But we, one of the th highlights for me is, is I sit right here on a stool. I don't preach. There's a microphone there and a microphone there. And people just come up and share their story. They share what God has done in their life. And this year we listened. I sat here and listened. People being healed from cancer. People getting saved and lives being transformed. And God miraculously providing for people. And I sat there and I said, miracles still do happen. And they're happening. In fact, somebody came to me in between services, and, and she's been in the church for a long time, and she gave me a really unique perspective. She said, she's, good things have always happened in our history, she said, but good things are happening faster now than I've ever seen them happen. 
and it's true. There's we've reports of people being healed. God's doing amazing things among us, which is incredible. God shows up in his miraculous power. That's how he demonstrates it. But we know it isn't only for the person who's experiencing it, but it's for everybody else around. We'll talk more about testimony and story later. Third thing is God's power seen in people. So verses 33, 36, 38, these cover Aeneas. Obviously, he was obviously had a reputation in his community. He actually recorded it. This is the guy who's bedridden because he's paralyzed for eight years. That's his reputation. That's his only known kind of characteristic is he's the paralyzed guy. Tabitha, on the other hand, she's a significant influence in her community, much, so much so that the widows are really mourning her loss. Why? Because she was generous, and she actually made clothing for them. And so she was a person of significance that had significant influence in her city. And so for her to die and come back from the dead, that's a powerful statement. That gets people's attention. God uses, it's not that God doesn't do the miraculous in people who don't have large or, st- or strong influence, but I'm, I'm convinced that God strategically does the miraculous so that people can, on a wide scale, can see his power demonstrated. He did that for her. See, when you think about that, think about it. God obviously will heal everybody. And I've heard stories of people who are what we'd say insignificant and people who are significant that experience God's healing and God's power. But just think about this for a moment. What happens when somebody who has significant either positive or negative influence has an encounter with God that changes their life? It changes a city, it changes a country, it changes a village. For example, I'm gonna have you watch a video. What happens when the witch doctor in the village gets saved? Take a look at this. Friday morning, we woke, we woke up and we were blessing the chief and we were greeting everyone, having a blast. And some people came and said, um, there's a man with some snakes. He was a witch doctor. His girlfriend was a witch doctor. She had leprosy. She had no, um, no fingers left, no toes left, just little stubs. And he was there with three puffer adders, these crazy venomous snakes. And he came to just disrupt everything. And we just prayed and I talked to him and I just literally challenged him. And the Lord gave me a word for him that he was really, really tired. And I just said, you're so tired. You're tired of darkness. And even some of you watching, you know, I'm tired of darkness. I want to come into the light. Well, this man just looked at me and I I told him, we have to kill your snakes. And I've killed a lot of snakes, you know, venomous snakes are always there to hurt. So we dug a really big hole in the name of Jesus. Those three venomous snakes just burned up and the witch doctor came to Jesus. His girlfriend came to Jesus. It was so powerful. There was just suddenly this peace around them. Like God just put this glory peace around them. I was standing next to the witch doctor and he looked out at his hands and asked that all of that, all of that was burning, the surface was burning. All of the venom and blood began to come out of his hands because he had been bitten many times. They began to come out of his hands and he looked down and I looked over and I put my hands on his hands and I just said in the name of Jesus. And God completely healed them all. So I asked him, do you want to be baptized? And he said, yes, I want to be baptized. And I said, are you committed to each other? Do you want to be married? And he said, yes, we want to, we want to be married. We want to be married before God. We're now we're going to follow Jesus. So the Lord just said, give him the ruby and diamond ring. And I was like, yes, Lord. And tell her she's a princess. Just put the ruby and diamond ring on her finger 
and just kiss her hands. You know, no fingers. Leprosy just takes your fingers off in it. And uh, she, she was just undone. And they looked each other in the eyes. And, and we did their vows right down there by the baptismal water. And then I said, you want to be baptized now? What I saw was just the weight of the love of the glory of Christ overtake all of that evil. And there wasn't a showdown. It wasn't a fist fight. We weren't fighting like you would think. The way that we, the way that it was completely overcome was by the love of Christ. And it was just the power of God. And of course, the whole village saw it. And we found out later that this man was hated and feared by everyone because he was so dangerous. The police couldn't stop him. No one could kill him. And now he's a man of God and the whole village watched. So now they're, they're set free from the demons. They're set free from the evil power of the snakes and all the witchcraft. And they've come to know Jesus as their Savior. Now they're married. And then they came and they went into the baptismal waters. That's amazing. Not bad in one day. Healed, saved, married, and baptized. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. I share that not because you and I have witch doctors running around Simi Valley, but because there are people of influence that don't even know Jesus yet, that God wants to do something profound in, in their lives because he loves them and he loves our city. And he wants to this that ripple effect of when he shows up in people's lives. So then there's one final thing of where we see God's power. It's seen in influence. Look at verse 35 and verse 42. These two cities, Salida and Joppa. So people... Ultimately, they turn to Jesus because of this miraculous demonstration of God's power. These two significant cities, they, there's this, this thing that's happened there that's, that's, I'm sure, because the way that they communicated was word of mouth, that it just spread like, like crazy, that this, these things had happened. But thinking about that because God showed up in, in, in his people in this situation, there's an incredible influence that happens in this, in this city for Jesus. This, this is representative of what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the influence and the presence of God in the world. That's, we're the bride of Christ. And so whatever church is in a city, that church is there to demonstrate who God is through his love and through his power. And so obviously the church was doing that in these two cities. And the question is for us is, are we doing that in our city? I think of some churches obviously that are significant that, that, that many of you might have heard of, but because God is using them, their cities are reaping the benefit. One of them is Bethel in Reading. Uh, Bethel, God's done a lot of things in Bethel, and there's been miraculous things that have happened. But even beyond the, the miraculous power God showed up in that church, they've loved their city probably better than any church I've seen love a city. I mean, the fact that they actually tithe to their city, that's crazy. I mean, they've invested in, in fire victims. They've done more. And if tomorrow Bethel closed their doors, the city of Reading would be in a world of hurt. There's another church that you've probably all heard of. It's called the Dream Center, Angeles Temple. And their influence on the, on the city of Los Angeles has been profound. It's incredible. I shared a testimony last week where literally in the court system, there are judges now that instead of sentencing people to prison, they sentence them to the recovery program at the Dream Center. That's called influence, which harkens back to the birth of that church, which is the birth of the Foursquare Movement, that Angelus Temple was the most influential church in the city of Los Angeles in its time. They had a commissary that fed more people than the city itself fed during, during lean times and during the Depression. If the Dream Center closes tomorrow, the city of Los Angeles is in a world of hurt. Then the question is for us, 
if Antioch closes tomorrow, does Simi Valley even know we existed? I mean, there are a lot of things that are good that are going on in our church and God's wanting to do, but there's more. Because I don't believe this is fairy tale. I don't believe this just is a nice Bible story. I believe this is the way that we're supposed to live. Is God's power shows up and the, the, the gospel influences an entire city. So with that understanding, how do we prepare? I know there's not a formula. There isn't something that you and I can do to like get God to do miracles, but there's things that you and I can do in terms of preparation and being ready for when he wants to move. So how do we prepare for God's power? Verse 38 and 39, we first of all have to choose courage. Choose courage. Most of us, our default is not courage, so you have to choose it. So verse 38 says, Since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing that Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, Please come to us uh, without delay. So Peter rose and went with them. So it's not, it's not stated there, but it's implied in, in the passage. Does Peter know why he's going? Sure he does. Sure he does. They're not just going to say, oh, by the way, come with us. They're coming for a reason. And so he knows that somebody has died because when he gets there, he obviously discovers that's what he, what he had probably heard. So what's Peter's response? He just has healed this paralyzed man. And they come and say, oh, by the way, you need to come with us because there's a woman who's died. And we'll see in a moment the reason that he knew because the way they, they did something very, very important that's included that. So what's Peter's response? Well, you know, it just helped a guy who couldn't walk, walk, but I don't know, raising someone from the dead, that's kind of a Jesus thing. I think I'll pass on this one. That's what it is. It says immediately he goes. He goes. When was the last time somebody came to you and a loved one died and said, hey, you know, before we call the, the morgue, why don't you come on over? Anybody had that call lately? No, because we, we, don't, we don't think that way. We, we, we kind of get stuck in, in, in this mode where that, that doesn't happen. But, happen. but what, what is it that, that was happening here is Peter is in a city next to Joppa. He's in Lydda because God knows what he's doing, and he's positioned Peter in the right place at the right time because he knows what Peter's going to do. And I'm convinced that's exactly the way that God works in us. God works, and he wants us to have courage because he's placed us where we're supposed to be for his purpose. There are no accidents with God. You work where you work, you live where you live, and you're in certain circumstances because God is always up to something in your life and in the lives of people around you. And most of the, the challenge that we have is that we don't see it. We just go through our normal life, our normal daily life, and don't really see the, the opportunities that God brings around us. I've probably shared this before, but a, a few years ago, I was driving on one of the back roads, rural roads in Ventura, and this horrific accident occurs on the other side of the road. It was a single car accident. It was so, so like horrific, it literally all traffic stopped. Everybody pulled to the side of the road. A car had wrapped around a telephone pole. And so we watched it happen, and there was probably about 12 or 15 of us that stopped. And as we're jumping out of the car, everyone's on their cell phone, and I'm just blowing up 911 because we're expecting to find some dead bodies in this car. And so we run over, and literally the, the car is, it's not even a third of the size of what it was before. It's just so compacted. And so we look in, and there's two people one of them is a guy who's completely unconscious. He wasn't wearing a seatbelt. He stayed in the vehicle, but he was in the back seat. And then the girl who was driving, she had her seatbelt on, and she's mildly, uh, like, like, she's not fully there yet. She's not fully conscious, but she's kind of hysterical. And so we get there, and because they were pinned in the car, there's nothing that we could do until, until emergency vehicles and, and, and those who knew how to extract them were, could arrive. So we're standing there kind of like helpless, like not knowing if he's dead and not knowing what's happening with her. And it just so happens as we're surrounding the car, I look up, and one of my good friends that I've known for years, who's a Christian, is standing there. He happened to be on the road at the same time. And as soon as I saw him, I knew exactly why we were there. 
we're supposed to pray. I couldn't, we couldn't pull him out of the car, but I know I could pray. So I just stepped back and I just started praying. I started praying in tongues. I started praying for God to do something miraculous. I started praying for, and, and all of a sudden, I, he wasn't dead, but the guy who was unconscious just wakes up. Of course, now he's in pain because there's all kind of injuries going on. And then eventually the, the, the fire trucks and ambulance, they roll, they get there. So we all have to back off. And so, so we all kind of left. And a couple days later, I was thinking about, you know, they're probably obviously still in the hospital. I know from what I could tell, they, they hopefully survived, even though they had some pretty serious injuries. And I'm sitting <laughs> in my office at the church, and, and I thought to myself, I wonder if I should go visit them at the hospital. And I'm not kidding. It was this abrupt, like the Lord, like, really? You think you should go visit them at the hospital? Sometimes God speaks to me that way. I don't know. Maybe that's what I need. It's kind of like, yeah, maybe you should. And so I thought, oh, oh good. So I went, I went to the hospital. I knew the hospital. I really even know their names. I found my way in by pulling out my pastor card. That works really well. And uh, I got in, and I visited with the guy briefly, and he, he was bitter. He was mad, and he was blaming God for the accident and some frustration. And so I, I, I offered to kind of pray, and he wasn't open to it. I'm like, that's okay. So then I went, and I talked to the girl. And I walked in and I said, hey, you don't know me and you probably don't even remember me. I said, but, but I was one of the first people on the scene after the accident. And I said, we couldn't do anything to help you because you were pinned in the car. I said, but I knew the reason I was there is to pray for you. And she just started sobbing. And I said, I, I just was praying that God would spare your life and God would heal you. And she had, she had broken her femur. She was in pretty bad shape. But she just started crying because what hit her was she said that God sent you there to pray for me. Even though she didn't even know God. She could see that God was at work. And so I said, hey, can I, can I pray for you? And she said, yeah, absolutely. And so I prayed for her. And I, I, I don't know what happened to her after that. I, I don't know what happened later in her life, but I pray that God used that moment to demonstrate that he was looking out for her. Because what had happened is that she dropped her cell phone and she reached over to grab it and she lost control of the vehicle and then swerved to correct and then hit the telephone pole. So God spared her life and just happened to put me and a friend of mine who knew we both were praying that God was gonna do something in their life. It may not be an accident that you drive up to, but every single day you are encountering moments where God could be at work and he's just saying, open your eyes. Open your eyes to see what I might want you to do or we want you to be present. And that takes courage because our default is what? I don't need to get involved. I don't want to step out. I don't want to do anything. But the default should be, God, you're at work, so therefore I have courage to step into what you want to do in these moments. Second thing is not only courage, but to have faith, to actually really actually believe that God's going to do something. So verse 37, it says, In those days, it says, talking of Tabitha, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. Now, you and I read that passage, and we just blow right past it. This is how I know that Peter knew why he, what he was getting into. So they were, they were going against normal Jewish tradition. Jewish tradition would have said if she died, normally burials would happen by nightfall. They were quick. But they didn't do that. They didn't follow their normal tradition. They washed her body and they put her on a bed because they had an anticipation. That's why they sent these guys to go get Peter because they knew that God would do miraculous things. So they went to get Peter and they said, no, 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 don't bury her yet. We got to give God a shot at this thing. So this is not Peter's courage. This is the faith of these widows and these people who believe that maybe God can raise her from the dead. Can you imagine? That's crazy. I mean, most of us don't, I mean, like, when somebody dies, we don't really think like, well, maybe this is an opportunity for resurrection. No, because we're mourning the loss and we don't think about that. And I'm not saying that you need to go lay hands on every dead body that you find unless God tells you to. But they had the faith to believe that even the ultimate thing that is the, 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 the end all for human beings, which is death, they still thought there's a possibility God could show up here. 
So they sent for Peter and they waited. I want you just to think about this for a moment. Here, I, uh, hear me on this. I am not advocating against doctors, surgery, medication. In fact, I think God has blessed us with the ability to have those things. But in a culture that defaults to that always first and then uses prayer as the last resort, don't you think it should be flipped? Don't you think if we're followers of Jesus and the same spirit lives in us that lives in Jesus, that our first default option should be to pray? If somebody's died, to pray. If somebody's sick, to pray. And then follow all of the other things. Take medication, have surgery, go to the doctor, do all those things. But pray at the beginning, pray in the middle, and pray at the end. Their default was what? They didn't call a doctor, they called Peter. Because they knew a doctor couldn't raise somebody from the dead, but God could do it through Peter. So what if we changed our default? What if we just prayed first in big things and small things? And I'm not saying don't over-spiritualize everything, but when you get a headache before you take Motrin or Advil or whatever you take, why don't you pray? When somebody gets the flu, before you give them all the things you're going to give them anyway, why don't you pray? Now, it's up to God to answer the way he wants to answer. So don't, because like, why, do why are we afraid to pray? Because we don't think God's going to answer, and then we look like an idiot. It's not you looking like an idiot, and God doesn't look like an idiot. God is doing what he's going to do. Why don't you just leave it up to God? There's been so many times, in, especially in small things, where I've been caught and said, you know, why don't we pray, and then God shows up. I'm convinced we will see more miracles when we pray first more. That's what they did. That was what their default was. That's how they prepared for God's power in their life, which leads to the third thing. Look at verse 34. God's power, and we have the way we prepare for it, is to remember Jesus. Verse 34, and Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed, and immediately he rose. I love that. What is Peter doing? He's saying, oh, by the way, I didn't heal you. Jesus did. Jesus through me healed you. That's important because no human being ultimately heals anybody. It's only through the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus heals people. And I love how Peter highlights that because you know what this miracle ultimately, it was about Aeneas being able to walk, but you know what it was really about? It was about Aeneas discovering Jesus. That's the bottom line because same thing true for Tabitha. What was it about for her? It was about her discovering God's work in her life and everybody around her coming to Jesus. Why? Because eventually, you know what's true? Tabitha died. Sorry. I know I just told you the end of the story of her life. I just ruined the whole ending. She's with Jesus now though. She eventually did die again and wasn't resurrected now, but will be resurrected later. But what was more important for her than even that resurrection was the fact that she has the eternal resurrection that was with Jesus. That's the point of all the people around her. And that's the beauty of what happens is that when, when we go to be with Jesus, if you followed him with your life, you go into this wonderful place, which, by the way, I'm sure when she died again, I don't know, maybe somebody had a thought, let's raise her again. I'm, th I'm sure her, her option would have been, please don't. I already seen what I got. I hear I'm good because we always pray like, oh, if God would bring them back. Those who know Jesus, I'm convinced if they could walk back into the bar, they'd say, no, please don't. Don't. I don't want to come back into that world. I'm with Jesus. The point is Jesus, to remember Jesus. And that's what they were doing. That's what, what, what Peter was making sure is that he highlighted. Jesus uh, shares, there's a story recorded of Jesus in Luke chapter 17, verses 11 through 19, that reminds us of it's about Jesus. So it says this, on the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he, met, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priest. And as they went, they were cleansed. 
Then one of them, when he had saw what he, he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now, he was a Samaritan, which, by the way, you got to love how that gets inserted because that just burned the Jews. One of their half-breed enemies is the one who's got it in the story. Verse 17, then Jesus answered, were not ten cleansed? Where are the nine? Was not one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. 10% got it right. The other nine missed it. Why? Because they got their healing. So Jesus merely became what? A means to their end. What he was trying to communicate to them is I am the end. Why does God do miracles? Why does God show up in power like that? Because it's a demonstration of who Jesus is. And, and sometimes that's the danger in miracles is that when we experience a miracle in a moment of crisis and God does some breakthrough, a week or a month or a year or a decade later, you and I forget the impact of that miracle. We forget about what Jesus did for us. And that's what leads to the last point, which is important. And this is so important. And this is why there was so much impact in these stories. Was it necessarily because there was miracles? It's what happened after the miracles. That is that you and I have to share the story. Verse 41 and 42, and it says, and he gave her his hand and he raised her up. This is, of course, Paul with Tabitha. Then calling the saints and widows, he presented her alive and it became known throughout all of Joppa and many believed in the Lord. So it's what happens afterwards that's significant, that is eternal of what's going on here is that people are now responding to Jesus because why? Peter's telling the story. Now, we read through this, and we don't realize the nuances of what's going on in this passage. This is pretty powerful. This is intentionally written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to highlight something that happened earlier that's recorded in Mark chapter 5. So this miracle that Peter raises Tabitha from the dead through the power of Jesus is reflective of Jesus raising Jairus' daughter from the dead in Mark chapter 5. And here's the interesting thing, and this is not by coincidence. Peter says this. He says, Tabitha, arise. You know what the name of the girl, Jairus' daughter's name was? Talitha. Jesus says the phrase, Talitha, arise. One letter difference, L and B. That's the only difference between the two. There's a correlation tied together for a reason. Because what Jesus did after that miracle is the opposite of what Peter does here. If you read through Mark chapter 5 and you see that Jairus' daughter is raised from the dead, do you remember what Jesus does? He says, shh, don't tell anybody. You're like, what? You just raised somebody from the dead. That's a good thing. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't tell anybody. What does Peter do? Peter takes her by the hand and he brings her out and it says he presents her. Like, look, she was dead and now she's alive. Why is that in this passage? I'm convinced it is a sign to the church to tell the story of God's miraculous power and never forget it. That God is doing miracles in the church in the book of Acts as a demonstration to everybody that look at what Jesus does in the lives of people. That's why it's so important for us to tell our story. You know, one of the things that, that there's always pushback on is like we always think that sharing our story or helping people to understand more about God or loving people so that they understand who Jesus is, we, we always put it under the big term evangelism and then we run scared. Why? Because I'm not an evangelist. God didn't call me to be an evangelist. God may not have called you to have the office of an evangelist, but guess what? He's called you to do the work of one. 
It's all of us. And what does an evangelist do? Well, evangelist goes around the world and preaches at crusades. No, read here. What does Peter do? Hey, look at what God did. Look at what God did. What's your story? What has God done in your life? Your story is the most powerful thing you have to demonstrate the power of God in your life. It may be physical healing. It may be transformation. It may be free from addiction. It may be all these kinds of things. God has done something profound in your life, and it's your story. And in the culture that we live in right now, where there's so, so much pushback on Christianity, the faith, and the church, you know what people need to hear? Your story. Because people relate to your story more than they relate to the four spiritual laws or any kind of prepackaged delivery system that we have of the gospel. Tell them your story. Because when they hear your story, they, there's something that God does when you tell your story that somebody else can identify with your, your humanity. And they can see themselves in your story and think, man, if, if there is a God and he can do that for you, then maybe he can do that for me. Share your story. There's a movement that, that, that people are getting it, that there's power in your story because it's your story and you own it. And here's the great thing. If it's your story, no one can talk you out of your story unless you let them. It's your story. It happened to you. You're the eyewitness to your story. So share it. There's a movement that started a number of years ago. Maybe you've seen it. There's a website for it. It's called I Am Second. And the whole concept is it's, they've got captured people on video who've come and now, who are people who are celebrities or people who have great significance or influence in culture, and they share their own journey. And, and it's for some people, like, I didn't know that they came to know Jesus. And it's this powerful Almost similar to this is this influence that they have, and people then discover, wow, do you know Jesus? And it's always tied back to God doing something sustaining in their life. And so there's something about this that you and I need to do. And so I'm going to close with this. We're going to play a video. And it's um, the reason I picked it is not because I, I'm a huge ice skating fan, but Scott Hamilton is probably one of the most well-known gold medalists from, from the United States, and he had one of the shortest testimonies. So that's one of the reasons I picked it, because we were not going to be here for another 30 minutes. So... But I want you just to listen to his short thing. This is, this is a video. There's tons of these videos called I Am Second by a number of different people. But just listen to him. He shares his own story, the things that he loves, the struggles in his life. But listen to how he ends it because that's how you and I all end our story. It ends with Jesus. Let's watch this together. Hey, how are you? Good to see you. You're here. I know. I know. All right, turning on, that's good. I am second, Scott Hamilton, take one. My name is Scott Hamilton. I am a retired male figure skater, <laughs> which usually gets a chuckle. You know, my life has been really a series of uh, ups and downs. I've had the highest of highs and the lowest of lows. It's been a roller coaster. I, you know, I've fallen down in front of 17,000 people five times in my long program, my first year at nationals, and then Five years later, I won an Olympic gold medal. So, you know, you just never know. There's failures, and then there's successes, and then there's um, knockdowns, and then it's getting up, and, and it's been kind of the, the story of my life. So much has happened since the film, you know, I Am Second. So much has happened, so much life. Uh, you know, my goodness, we brought home two kids from Haiti. It's, you know, and I have another son and another daughter, and that was an amazing process. You know, coming out of that uh, brain tumor, it awakened me in so many ways. And then, you know, just when you think well, you're kicking into a new normal, you know, the brain tumor comes back. And it's like, here's the tragedy. It's right here in front of you. How are you going to respond to that? I didn't fear it like I thought I would. It was just instantly replaced with 
okay, this is my fight. Even it's in your in your lowest place, there's hope. Life's gonna throw everything it can at us. And it's how we strengthen ourselves to be able to endure that gives our lives quality and meaning. And you know, if, if I had to list the ingredients for success, the greatest single ingredient would be failure. We're more alive in our challenge and suffering than we are in our good fortune. <laughs> Honestly, it's only through understanding Jesus and what he brought to this world and what he did for us that we have a chance at being victorious. And I've never been more content and I've never been more in love, and I've never been more at peace than I am in my faith. And I'd love for everybody to have that. And I'd love for everybody to have that. That's Scott's story, what's your story? You share your story. I'm gonna ask you just to close your eyes. We're gonna come to a conclusion here in a moment, but I, I, I want us to respond to something that we have to come constantly, especially as we walk through this resurgent season and even way beyond that, we have to come back and revisit constantly because we forget. The reason that Peter was able to go into a place where a man who couldn't walk and help him to walk through the power of Jesus and can go into a room where a woman has died and see her raised to life is because Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that he would send his spirit so that we would have power to be his witnesses. That's exactly what Peter was doing. Peter had power through the Holy Spirit. In a moment, I'm going to pray that once again, that we would experience being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is a normal part of following Jesus, that God would give us his spirit to dwell in us, to empower us, to be what he called us to be. But before I do that, I, I, there's something really important. I had one of our leaders share with me in between services, the impression the Lord gave him during first service. He said as he was worshiping during the song that we were singing, You Make Me Brave, and it talks about God's love crashing over us, like a wave crashing over us. And he was talking about, you know, when you're in the, in the ocean and you're in the waves and a big wave hits you, he said, in a sense, you're powerless. You just have to go with the momentum of the wave and there's this sense of just your, your body's just floating in the water as the wave kind of takes you where it wants you to go. And he said, as we were singing, I just was, was thinking about just surrendering to the Spirit. And then he said, when we got to the end of the service and we were praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit, he said, I, I just looked across the sanctuary and I watched and I felt like the, the water was just rising across the room to the point where it got up above everyone's head and all we were doing was just floating in it. And he said, that's the way the Holy Spirit wants to come, is that, that we would surrender to his power, we would surrender to his presence, and the result would be that we would just be enveloped by his power in our lives. Not because we're in this space or in this building, but in everything that we do, that we're surrounded and we're filled with his power to accomplish his purpose. So I'm gonna ask you right where you're at right now, if you would just stand to your feet, all of us are gonna stand, I'm gonna ask you, even with your eyes still closed, I'm going to ask you just to lift your hands. If you're comfortable with that, if, if this is something you're uncomfortable with, that's okay. But raising our hands is a sign of surrender and openness to, to God. And we want to take a physical posture to reflect what, what's going on inside. Lord Jesus, as we stand before you, 
amazed at what you have done 2,000 years ago, how you brought a man who couldn't walk to walk and you brought a woman who was dead to life. And that, Lord, we know that you didn't finish with that miraculous power 2,000 years ago, but today you want this for your church. You want this for the world. But, Lord, we can't manufacture it. We can't make it. We can't even understand fully how it all works, but we know, Lord, that you are the one who causes miracles to happen. And so, Lord, right now, as we stand before you, I ask once again, as you did over and over and over again in Peter's life, that you would fill us with your spirit again. Would you bring power again? Would you bring gifts again, Lord? Would you settle in on us what you want to accomplish? That, Lord, we would, as, we, as we have to surrender to a wave, we surrender to the power of your spirit in this moment. And as a result, Lord Jesus, would you bring to us gifts? Would you give to us wisdom and insight and the ability to go beyond? Even, Lord, I think about, Lord, that you list that one of the gifts that you give is the gift of hospitality. Lord, we're talking about that. Would you give us the gift of hospitality to go outside of ourselves to love people? But Lord, whatever is required of whatever situation that we find ourselves in, Lord, I pray that you would, by your spirit, give us the power to accomplish your will. And the result will be, through our courage and our faith, there will be people who will come to know you. There will be people who experience your power. And the result will be, there will be an army of people standing around your throne who came to know you through a powerful experience that had influence in their life. Jesus, would you accomplish your purpose in us today? We thank you, Jesus, in your name.